Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that we have this time together as brothers and sisters in Christ to remember what you've done for us. To let it move our hearts to remind us of how great your love is and love begets love. So Lord, as we look at the price you paid, increase our love for you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Uh, I'm going to read a passage from John chapter 19, and it's from verse 23, if you want to follow along in your Bibles. Um, I'm not going to do a verse by verse like we normally do. It's more topical message, so um, uh, you'll understand as we go through it. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven one, one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it will be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, and when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge sponge full of sour wine on, on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and of the other had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. I want to uh, go back in time and just talk about <laughs> what a momentous thing this was that happened. I, it, I think it is the most dramatic thing that has ever happened in world history. In fact, some people say it's the hinge of all history that this is the turning point of all history. And, and I don't think that's an exaggeration. The cosmic battle over the souls of mankind was reaching a, a crescendo. This was the final battle. You know, we often think of Armageddon or the end of the millennium as the final battle. Those are just mopping up exercises. This is when the war was won. It was determined by the cross. This greatest of all battles began shortly after creation. 
the creation of mankind in the Garden of Eden. And yes, that was a real story. In fact, Jesus refers to it, quoting from that Genesis passage, which confirms its truth. And even modern science has proven that the human genome came from one, one woman who they now refer to as Eve. There had to be freedom for mankind to choose or love would be coerced. And so our creator allowed Lucifer to rebel against him and give man an alternative to goodness, to light, and to love. He tempted Eve to rebel against God who had, had given Adam and her everything that they could ever need. It's the same temptation today he uses with us. You shall be as gods, he says. Don't trust what God said. He just wants to keep you from enjoying life to the full. Eve chose and Adam followed. The wonderful fellowship that they had with God was broken. They changed, but God didn't. He was still as loving and gracious as he had ever been. This is why, despite their rebellion, he gave them a promise and a covering. The promises that one day would come from Eve, a male descendant who would crush the authority and head of the one who had deceived them. It was the very first indication of the great plan of God. And then God did another gracious and merciful thing. He clothed them with animal skins. It was another prophecy in a dramatic form. Something innocent had to die to cover their sinfulness. And that is what animal sacrifice would picture for the millennia that followed until the Lamb of God would come, that promised descendant of Eve, who would restore us to fellowship with God by giving his life in payment for our rebellion. Those of you that have been with us on Wednesday night following through Genesis, you see these ups and downs of human history, and there's been more downs than ups because we're so susceptible to the lies of the enemies of our soul. And that's because we inherited Adam's fallen nature. But every time God would raise up someone to turn people back to himself until the promised one came. The prophets over the centuries gave us the details of how God was going to prevail in this great battle. The one who would come, the prophecies say, would be born of a virgin from the line of King David in the town of Bethlehem. He would be God with us. He would heal the sick, cause the blind to see and the lame to walk. He would reach out to the Gentiles and teach around the northern shores of Galilee, a light in the darkness of this world. But he would also be rejected by his own people, beaten and die by crucifixion among criminals. But then buried in a rich man's tomb, but he would rise from death and reign forever, removing our sins far from us as far as the east is from the west. All of those details were predicted hundreds of years before he fulfilled it. And when Jesus was born, just as predicted, there was this great expectation in the world at that time of the coming king. The Jews thought for sure this one is going to throw off the 
yoke of Roman oppression and be a great military general, general, but Jesus came to win a much greater battle. He came to restore our fellowship with God that was lost in the garden. How could a carpenter from a tiny town of northern Israel do that? Though it was clearly predicted, no one really saw it coming, except a prophet who was in the temple, a man named Simeon. And when Jesus was brought to be dedicated as a little baby, he told the prophet told Mary that not only did Jesus have this great future, but that a sword would pierce her heart. The battle would be clear from that time that he was born. When the ruler of the region found out from the wise men that the king was born, he sent soldiers to kill all the babies in Bethlehem. But God's always one step ahead of the enemy, for he is all-knowing. And he sent Joseph and his family to Egypt to escape the threat. After that ruler, Herod the Great, died, the family returned to a little town of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up in relative obscurity. And as soon as he began his ministry, Lucifer confronted him at the end of a 40-day fast. He challenged what Jesus had heard from the Father by asking if he really was the Son of God. And if he was, then do this or do that. And Jesus deflected the temptations with scripture, showing us how to resist temptation. And as Jesus continued to minister for three years, the attacks would come from the religious world, just as they do today. The religious scholars and leaders were always challenging him. They accused him of operating by the power of Lucifer. They harassed him throughout those three years, but Jesus kept addressing their hearts and defeating their attacks. But when Jesus raised Lazarus from death, they knew if they didn't stop him, they would lose their power and their positions. So they plotted how they might put him to death. Think of how insane that is. Their every argument was countered by his wisdom. They saw him do the impossible, casting out demons, healing paralytics, healing deformities, all manner of illness. Men who hadn't walked in years were on their feet jumping for joy. A man born blind saw everything clearly and understood what he was seeing. And even the dead were raised to life. It seems to me they ignored the obvious. The, all the evidence that Jesus really was the Messiah because they didn't want to believe. They knew if he was honored, it would be their demise. So they went against all reason and decided to kill him. Little did they know that they were carrying out God's plan. And how could they have known? Sure, it was in the prophecies, but no one thought God would come into the world as a man to die for our sins. It's too gracious. It's too loving. It's too merciful to imagine. That's because we look around and don't see anyone who comes close to that kind of person. But Jesus isn't a sinful person. He was conceived without a sin nature like the rest of us. Even if they accepted that, it's still too great a love to fathom. On the third Passover, his ministry, he was headed to Jerusalem for the last time. He knew his time had come, the time for him to receive the wrath of God 
upon himself for our sins. The justice we deserve was going to fall on him, and he alone could do it. He had the last Passover meal with his disciples, and he taught them such powerful lessons that they fill almost half of the Gospels. He taught in the temple. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane under such great stress that drops of blood fell from his forehead. He knew that was his last night of freedom, so he prayed until those who came to arrest him arrived, Judas leading them. The soldiers came to arrest him, and he submitted himself to them. He was taken to Annas, who had been high priest before Caiaphas. He was the father-in-law of high Caiaphas and kind of the one in charge of things. Caiaphas interrogated him, trying to get him to tell him who his followers were within the Sanhedrin. A soldier struck Jesus' face for his honest answer, and Jesus calmly asked why he had hit him for telling the truth. Anna saw he wasn't getting any information from him, so he lowered him into a cistern for the night. And at the crack of dawn, another trial began, this time by Caiaphas, the current high priest. Caiaphas tried false witnesses, but they couldn't agree. And so he demanded Jesus to tell the truth. Are you the son of God, he asked. And Jesus answered in the affirmative and referred to a prophecy of Daniel that ends with the whole world worshiping him. Caiaphas was so enraged that he tore his, his sacred garment. And then they took Jesus to the political leaders, Pilate and Herod. Herod was a son of the man who tried to have Jesus killed as a baby. He just wanted to see a miracle. Pilate had Jesus whipped half to, half to death. And his wife had been warned in a dream not to convict Jesus. But Pilate was caught by circumstances. You see, his sponsor in Rome, Janus, had just been executed for treason. If the Jewish leaders told the emperor that Pilate would not execute a man who claimed to be king, Pilate would certainly be exiled. So Pilate gave in and ordered the crucifixion. Crucifixion was one of the most horrible ways to die that was ever invented. It was meant to keep a person in the worst agony possible as long as possible. Jesus was probably already in shock from the flogging and had lost a lot of blood. And as he carried the cross to the place of crucifixion, he collapsed. The soldiers chose a random person from the crowd, Simon the Cyrene to carry the cross the rest of the way up the hill. And there they drove the spikes in his wrists and his feet. And hanging in ignominy between the two thieves, his life ebbed away. But even in his agony, he forgave those who crucified him. He received one of the thief's confessions and promised that he would be with him that day in paradise. He took care of his mother's future, and then he fought the pain of crushing nerves in his hands and feet and torn back, and darkness came over the land, while your sins and mine were laid on him. 
the wrath of God for all the sins of mankind descended upon him. You know, common argument today that I hear on television and people challenging the faith is, who would, what kind of a father would allow their son to be treated like that? They can't imagine doing something like that to their own son. What kind of a God is this, they ask. The father and the son agreed to do this out of love for us, knowing there was no other way for justice to be served. I think there was no other way for us to see how greatly we are loved and how great God's grace is. And as the light returned, Jesus put his spirit into his father's hands and declared, it is finished. The reason he came was to win the victory. The battle for the souls of men and women was won for all who will receive what he did for us. I think Satan thought he had won until Jesus uttered that final declaration. He must have thought, what does that mean? It is finished. I won. He's dead. The souls of mankind are mine now. But that phrase, it is finished, also means paid in full. I can imagine Satan screaming in defeat when he realized what had just happened. He had done what he hoped to do, torture and kill God in the flesh, but God declared the victory when he said it is finished. He must have suddenly realized his fate was sealed. It would be three days before he really realized how completely he had lost. And 50 more until he could see God's plan. God's Holy Spirit in millions of sanctified believers. The disciples also thought all was lost. That final word from Jesus must have gone over and over in their minds as well while they hid out from authorities. A couple of sleepless nights lay ahead it was Friday, but Sunday was coming. So will you let that word store, stir in your hearts from now until Sunday morning? It's really one, one word in Greek, to telestai. It is finished. It is paid. It is accomplished. Paid in full. We need to realize what that means to us. Because when we realize it, we'll realize there is no more condemnation. Jesus has won. The battle is won. There are still skirmishes, but the war is over. Jesus is the victory for everyone who will receive him. He paid the price in our place. Eternal forgiveness is ours in him. We're going to celebrate that now by taking communion. And often in communion, we look forward to the fact of the resurrection. But tonight, celebrating Good Friday, I want us just to focus on this that took place. The price he paid, the victory he won, and what it means to us. Would the ushers come forward?